0: you. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the fifth episode of Conversations. I'm Eliana.
1: And I'm Patrick. Hi.
0: Hi. Now, Khan is over. <laughs> How are you feeling?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I still feel a bit fatigued by it overall, which is, you know, quite strange after all these days. But overall, you know, you really learn to look back on these festivals and then Maybe in the moment sometimes they even disappoint you to some degree, but when you look back you still have a lot of fond memories of meeting people there, of seeing films that in the first moment you may not be able to appreciate as much as it turns out later. So, yeah, I think only time will tell, but right now I'm also happy to be back in, you know, live on a regular basis
0: Yes, yes, indeed. There was a a 12-day, 14-day, 13-day time was suspended for me. Right. And I remember my expectations were scattered. And scattered, they did turn out. But there was the ceremony. And so, Patrick, can you tell me what happened in the ceremony? Would you like to go through some of the prizes that were awarded this year?
1: Right, yeah. And I guess... We can't get around it. We have to (laughs) name a few. And uh, maybe we should start with the one that was the first big one and that surprised me in a way that I didn't expect. So there was the uh, Door, which is the Mm -hmm. prize for the best debut, and that went to uh, Inside the Yellow Cocoon Show, a film we talked about on our last Mm -hmm. episode a film we both really liked. If there was buzz at all, that I think in any way is not really comparable to last year's, maybe, let's say, After Sun, you know, that had a lot of buzz even at the festival back then. Uh, This one, maybe, you know, it's also a very different film, Uh, you know, much slower, much less accessible, I would argue. But yeah, I was very happy and I saw the entire ceremony in the Debussy, which was nice. And Mm -hmm. there were so few people that I basically felt like I had the whole balcony area to myself with a friend of mine and that felt nice too. It was, you know, like having a cinema as your living room or something. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really happy about this award Uh, and I thought, oh, if it starts... With such a good decision, uh, how will this continue, uh, this ceremony? Yeah, we have a lot of other interesting choices, I think. Now, a lot of people on social media made fun of the fact that Ruben Ursland is better at awarding <laughs> films than his films. Oh <laughs> Too polemic for me. I think he is very good at what he's doing. I Not that all of his films succeed in the way that I would like them to, but I still, this was a very good choice, uh, which, of course, wasn't his decision. I think there's an, you know, there's an own jury for that. But in any case, so that was, uh, that made me happy. Then we have, you know, it seemed more and more, the more it went on, the ceremony, the more it became sort of dual between the Justine Trier film Anatomy of a Fall, and mm-hmm. Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, a film we also talked about in our last episode, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it turned out when they when they announced the Grand Jury Prize, which is uh, you know only topped by the Palme d'Or, and that turned out to mm-hmm. be Jonathan Glazer, who you know I don't want to interpret too much into that, but his facial expression was a bit you know got a bit stony maybe a bit frozen uh, so mm. you, you could tell that there may have been certain expectations but yeah he still was awarded that prize that i think you know it's still an honor i suppose <laughs> uh but yeah then it was sort of clear oh this is going to be anatomy of a fall and
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially when then jane Fonda went on about oh, this year there are seven women in competition, which is, you know, a mm-hmm. record of the festival's history. And then it was already clear, you know, that, oh, this is going to be awarded to a woman. And there was only Justine Trier, really, about whom a lot of people felt this might be a strong contender. And indeed it was, and was awarded the Palme d'Or. That of course, she she took the stage there to make an... A political address, you know, she spoke about the strike that we mm, mentioned. The pension Exactly. Strikes.
0: We actually didn't mention them. We mentioned them in an earlier rendition that wasn't...
1: Oh, so there was cut out.
0: Mm-hmm, It was cut uh, out. I
1: wasn't aware of that. So maybe, so... could you remind people of what was going on in France?
0: So, over the past two, three months, France has been in a state of protest against Macron's pension reform. Essentially, he has demoted the age of retirement from what previously was the age of 62 to the age of 64, and this has caused a lot of grief amongst the general French population and even led to some threats of protestation of Cannes itself which did not manifest i believe there was a small protest in front of the carlton hotel which primarily was hotel staff but uh, a lot of people have been very upset by change in the age because it works for the benefit of those who are in positions with tenure but for those who are doing jobs such as picking up trash more hands on work this is upsetting news what trier did, she took the stage and she took the award, and she made a statement
1: yeah, she uh, you know she basically complained about the uh neoliberal politics of macron she She also mentioned that the film industry in France is becoming more and more concerned with just profit making and not allowing directors you know second chances. This went even so far that her speech was addressed in the parliament, in in, in the uh, French parliament, which I think is quite remarkable. I don't think that happens so often. And you could also clearly see that uh, Emmanuel Macron wasn't very happy about that because uh, when Titan won uh, two years ago, he mm-hmm. congratulated uh, Julia Ducournau and tweeted that publicly. This year, of course, nothing happened from his side, so you can tell that was probably noted and uh, mm. silence can be interpreted in a way that's very clear so in any way um, it's it's at all interesting you know that uh something like movies they still matter societally mm-hmm. they still have an impact on the broader discourse and that's a lovely thing to just you know to realize and I think it's a nice reminder mm-hmm. uh, yeah and anyway maybe uh There's also, talking of rather good decisions, I think it was not a bad choice to award the Japanese actor Yakushu Koji with the award for best actor. Uh, He was in the Wim Wenders film that Mm -hmm. I did not really care for. But I think if I had to praise one element of that film, it would be his performance. So uh, kudos to that decision. Mm -hmm. We also had... Because when it became clear, it was also another indicator, you know, like it, when uh, Sandra Hüller didn't win for mm-hmm. Best Actor, a female mm-hmm. actor, you could tell, okay, this must mean that there is a bigger prize, that Anatomy of a Fall will be awarded later. And that's how it came about. So this this award went to Merve Dista in About mm-hmm. Dry Grasses. And I think that's a mm-hmm. performance we both very much appreciated yes. as well, right?
0: Yes, no, she had an incredible presence that worked well with the script and just the dynamic and tension that she had with her opposite protagonist of yeah. Um, Summit.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable that she wasn't even, you know, she isn't even the proper protagonist of that film. She is, you know, she becomes at some point of the film very central to the film But for Mm -hmm. a long time, she's also absent in that film. So uh, that was nice to see that uh, she still gained that uh, recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we don't have to talk much more about the ceremony here, I think. It's nice also to see that uh, Janos films, they picked up the rights for the U.S. for about dry grasses, I think, together Mm -hmm. with another distributor that doesn't come to mind now. So it's good that this film, you know, this will not be lost on people. This will at some point be showing uh, in the US. Uh, Yeah, I guess you could see that maybe in like IFC or something, you know, like very small theaters, basically also just East and West Coast, I suppose. But uh, that's what those sort of films usually, those are the only markets for these films, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, well, it does seem like a a few other awards were also picked up by some female directors, and that's going to be a bit of a theme today. There was How to Have Sex by Molly Manning, which we will not talk about at this moment. was a film that I think was able to touch quite a large audience. Not sure how I feel about it, but um, it honed in on consent and the vagaries regarding consent, which is something that has not been explored. However, it would have been nice to see. Did it get um, that feeling when the time for something has passed? Was it mentioned in any awards, uh, uh, the Joanna Arnaud.
1: I don't, you know, I, I don't recall that. But uh, I think it's, we should say that um, How to Have Sex won Ansata uh, à which is, you know, mm-hmm. the second biggest category here in Cannes. Though you know, mm-hmm. I hear so many people complain about that category, that and it's a bit like in Berlin, you have the uh, panorama section, and in Cannes, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are often dissatisfied with the films from uh, but it's still this prize is still considered to be you know uh, prestigious. I think, if I'm not mistaken, last year, um, Return to Seoul won uh, in that mm-hmm. category, so you know, there you can tell that. Uh, this brings about good titles, uh, this Mm -hmm. section. But I think there is also, you know, there are a lot of films that I don't feel very positive about. Uh, But yeah, in any case, uh, shall we move move on here to...
0: So moving on from that, we are going to actually follow a thread of female directors that were in competition. This year, there were a total of seven, but today we'll be talking about three. We'll start with Justine Triet, Anatomy d'une chute, or anatomy of a fall. And then we'll go on to Catherine Brea. And we will finally end with
1: Alice Rovacher.
0: Alice Rovacher. So Catherine Brea's Letté dernier, or last summer, and Alice Rovacher's La Chimera, the chimera.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I suppose. Uh, mm. even the English title might just be, you know, the original one because... Perhaps. I don't know. I, I guess a la, you know, people will still... Yeah. <laughs> the... <laughs> will still get that. Uh...
0: All right. So we'll start with the Palme d'Or winner. Now, you didn't see this coming as a winner originally, did you? I mean, this film... Where to begin? It features a Franco-German couple who have a son and a dog who live in the mountainous region in France. And the mother, played by Sandra Hülle, is a writer. The father is also a writer or professor. And the film turns into an investigation over the death of Samuel, the father. And Sandra Höhle's character is investigated for this suspicious death. And Anatomy of a Shoot, even though we have the physical body, which falls out of a window, um, we have really the dissection of the relationship that's on full display in the court setting.
1: Right. And, you know, in, in German, you have this nice ambiguity of, you know, in German it's also Fall, but that mm-hmm. refers to case. So... You know, it's at the same case yeah, at the same time it's a case, you know, like uh
0: mm-hmm. ah,
1: I see. <laughs> in terms of investigation, maybe. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, the fall, like falling down somewhere. Mm-hmm. So uh I think that's at play, you know, if you had this title in German and that's a nice, you know, that sort of introduces the film already in ve- very ambiguous terms.
0: hmm Now, Patrick, how did you feel? while watching this film? Or what did you think of this film?
1: Yeah, at first I was really impressed. And, you know, if you had asked me in the middle of the maybe first half of the film if this is a Palme d'Or contender, I would definitely say yes. I was very impressed by just really the staging of Trier. It starts in a very funny way. We see Sandra Hüller being interviewed by a younger journalist who seems also... Mm -hmm to be a bit starstruck with her and at the same time trying to be professional about the interview. But this interview is constantly interrupted by P-I-M-P uh by 50 cent.
0: 50 cent
1: and We just hear the instrumental of that song. But it, you know, it's played again and again and again. It becomes the sort of leitmotif for this film. And mm-hmm. at that moment I thought, oh wow, this is so confidently shot. Uh we have very interesting uh camera work here because uh the camera overall is very subjective. Uh, it has this strange quick zoom on people's faces occasionally if you know mm-hmm. almost like uh you know, it uh it hits people by surprise, then the camera is also subjective in the way it moves around in a way just people move around, you know, it uh uh, it pans to the right, to the left. It's very unsteady in that respect. And even the way th- just this first interview contrasts Sandra Hüller and the, you know, whose name here in the film is also Sandra, uh, mm-hmm. the way it contrasts her laid-backness with the mm-hmm. journalist's eagerness, uh, it was it was greatly captured. You know, uh, I was, yeah, I was totally in for that ride and um he had even continued that way until until I think we reach uh you know the stage of the court drama and then it becomes a bit more conventional and then i thought it somehow lost a bit of steam but this first half what i really liked about it the most is depicting process i think depicting process is one of the most cinematic things you can do like uh, really confront us with a sort of reality that we are not used to, but that is so mundane to other people. It's so natural to other people. We really see if the film is called anatomy of a fall, that mm-hmm. is really to show us how the investigators, how they go about reenacting what may have happened. You know, you see how mm-hmm. a dummy is thrown out the window uh, in mm-hmm. order to see how the splashes of blood, how they may have stained uh the wall, because we have these conspicuous three uh droplets uh, Dr- yeah, yes. drops mm-hmm. on on the wall and it seems to the investigators that this is uh rather unlikely that if this purpose just fell out of the window, like or like even I don't know. We, of course, don't even know if there is some suicide or something uh, Mm -hmm. that may have been committed. Uh, But yeah, people are very uncertain about what has occurred. And we as an audience are also not privy to what happened because we follow the son who goes out for a walk with the dog while the incident happens. And yeah, we are very much uh, not in the know here as well.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I was um, impressed by how much control of little facts. Like, I don't know for you, but for me, I didn't realize. I don't know if this is giving it away too much, but I didn't realize the sun has a certain inability to sense something. And for me, this did not become obvious until a little bit later in the film, where it becomes uh, of more importance. I was also very impressed by the use of taking sound and weaponizing it. This occurs from the very first scene with the interviewer journalist and Zandra Hulle's character, as well as it comes back to haunt us later scene with when the insecurities of this creative couple are really put under the microscope. And it reminded me in some way of Saint-Omer because this film was not quite interested in finding a concrete culprit but was rather interested in exploring the relationship within a courtroom setting as if to say what is the truth of a person that we know when they pass away what is who who are they actually to us and understanding from each perspective in the triangle of son mother father what the other could mean to one another right I don't know if it worked for you. I'm still also trying to digest the ending um, as to whether there is an ultimate ideology at play or belief inherent to what it means for the verdict to have taken on more of um, a reliance on the child's point of view at the end and in that in determining truth.
1: No, to me it really stayed open until the end I wouldn't say that the film you know to me it didn't make the impression as though it was interested in providing us with some answers with regard to the to the literal fall here you know you mentioned having this relationship under microscope or something I would say we really rather have it on the silver screen you know it becomes uh, mm. very broad you know like very big it becomes monumental in a sense because we have this scene that is perhaps the scene of the film or like you know if there will be awards conferred to let's say Sandra Hüller or something in the future Mm -hmm. uh, or even if she's just nominated you will see a certain you know is a fight you know a, a fighting scene of uh the couple you'll probably see that again and again in you know mm-hmm. these trailers they have then for for the award season and and that's however, you know for me and I think we talked about it even you know uh, off microphone. we talked about uh, <laughs> that I at least I was not convinced of that scene. I think it's a very powerful scene it's a very strong scene, but it doesn't quite mm-hmm. serve the film formally because this film is so much concerned with us not knowing things. And then Mm -hmm. it shows us because we really rely on tape recordings here. That's what you mentioned earlier or what you referred to, Mm -hmm. that uh, sound is weaponized. And uh, so the husband, because he is really, you know, that's at least one part of the story that we hear. He is not getting on with his novel. He has been working Mm -hmm. on novel for a while But uh, it is, in fact, uh, Sandra Hüller who's been uh, successful with her literary work. And in one of the court scenes, we hear this tape recording being played. But then instead of just providing us with that, we actually see how the scene plays out with the actors instead Mm -hmm. of just staying there in the courtroom. And I think there, it's sort of like the film turns against its own... Uh, poetics mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. i'm not sure you know like on the one hand it's a really powerful scene but i don't think it does the film a great service in the broader picture uh mm-hmm. and yeah that's also where i think it felt like it needed to in accordance with certain rules of the genre and yeah i don't know how you felt about that
0: Right, I actually read an interview with um Justine Trier, and she said that if it were up to her, she actually this was a little bit iffy because i would i think isn't it not up to you? but she said that she would have liked to have ten minutes of just hearing the recording and that she did not want to use any flashbacks because she f- found sound to be so persuasive even more than in i guess than images, but in this case. Her use of a flashback, which is a somewhat incomplete flashback, to try to, I suppose, give us some gray area to work with, with the weaponization of the recording. But it's a bit upsetting to hear that she originally didn't want to use it, and that you're saying here, and I also agree, that it might have been stronger to have just not had a visual that accompanied the playback of the recording.
1: But I feel, feel like I don't quite follow, like, why did she not do that?
0: I don't know, to be honest. I really oh, okay. don't know why she... It was just rather... I read that she said she would pref- had preferred to have done that. So I wonder what went on behind the scenes since I think it would have made for a very powerful moment, too, to also just soak in that tension of being in the courtroom as we hear live with the rest of the court just this sound. Right. And how we then decide how we interpret what may or may not have gone on because towards the end of this recording there is a physical altercation which is open to interpretation as if the words are not enough that physical abuse could could be more damning than the actual verbal parry that goes on between the couple Mm -hmm.
1: and perhaps speaking of couples uh one should also add that uh you know even though this is a female-centered episode here, and I don't want to take away from this, but uh, this film was also co-authored, uh, you know, with uh, Justine Trier's partner, uh, Atur Harari. Uh, one may have seen the Onoda film that uh, premiered in Ansa uh, Targa in Cannes uh, two years ago or something that was directed by him. And uh, I think when we see these, you know, fights uh among the couple, uh, play out. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps, you know, being a creative couple, they, you know, that may have had some influence on that as well. And mm-hmm. I think what we talked also about not on the podcast, uh, is the, you know, the notion of language here that I think is, is fascinating, yes. right? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. uh, could you, uh, say something about that?
0: Even in what Trier does, which is very simple, she inverts perhaps what we believe to be the stereotypical successful couple. The female here is the one who is successful. She is the one who has gone off and lived her creative life, quote unquote, to a higher degree of success than the male. And I think that that also comes with it some manipulation of language. So I don't know, just just that it's a very simple trick of inverting the gender. And then in terms of language, what the impact is on a child, perhaps, because I think in the very final third, it becomes how words really matter. Often there are periods where we see mouths moving, but we don't hear audio. Then there's something where we see the inverse And then we also see at some point something that plays with that very idea of what is, how are we supposed to interpret the language that is being spoken to us and whether language actually or words actually are the ultimate thing that can get across what it is uh, that is meaningful. I don't know. At some point in the film too, it becomes an issue of whether fiction or reality a defense of the arts um uh, some a character says am i supposed to be here explaining to you that an outline of a novel is different from an actual from a novel or was it reality that they said
1: i think of a novel yeah because um, of a novel you know it is uh i think it's maybe not too much of a spoiler i think we can say that uh, sandra the protagonist she apparently took you know one one outline of her husband that he was never able to you know develop further to a novel she she mm-hmm. took that idea and then became very successful with that novel that she uh, wrote based on that idea. and mm-hmm. yeah, and it's fascinating often they discuss their um, that something that is said in a certain context may not be a universally, you know, true statement, even, you know, that some things just arise, you know, out of a heightened emotional state. And then you have to really understand the context in order to know what language means here. And, but I also just wanted to, you know, go on a very fundamental, elemental level here and say that, of course, we see Sandra Hüller here speaking primarily English which is, Uh, of course, not her mother tongue that is also uh, Mm -hmm. mentioned in the film. And then this couple speaks primarily in English. But then in the court scene, we have this conflict that in court, it is not really acceptable there to speak in English. So you have also, uh, you see her sometimes being in conflict with... uh, with uh, with her french you know her french is not very strong and she has to sort of she has to navigate that as well in in a very uh again a very heightened emotional state right like she doesn't mm-hmm. want to do any mistakes here and it's also just very interesting when she is in conversation with the lawyer that takes on mm-hmm. a, a bigger role uh, throughout the film uh in the way he is sort of coaching her to use the right words at the right time and mm-hmm. not maybe pertain too much to emotion you know and certain tips you would just be given in such a situation and that you as a viewer may not necessarily think about
0: no yes um going off of that i would wanted to do a small analysis of the names, and Zandra actually means protector of humanity. Samuel, her husband's name, means God has heard, or God has set, or God has placed. And Daniel, their son's name, means God is my judge. And I think that's a small detail which perhaps could go unnoticed, but I think it does play quite a large role in the development of their story.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, maybe just uh, also about this uh, relationship between uh, Trier and Sandra Hüller. Uh, Sandra Hüller was also part of her last film, Sybil, that I did not see. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's nice to see that they, you know, that apparently this relationship must have intensified because in Sybil she wasn't, you know, the leading role and now she like you cannot be, <laughs> you cannot have a bigger leading role, I suppose, than this in terms of just mm-hmm. in terms of presence and in terms of centeredness of of the narrative. I think it's heavily centered on her, and I think she gratifies that or like she is, you know she she makes the most out of that. And mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yes, I believe um, after the initial projection of the film um Trier said that she had essentially written this character with Zandra in mind. Um which makes sense given everything that you've said. Um Yeah. Yeah, is there anything else because how how did you instinctively this this is a film that has grown on me and I wonder if it's because I know that it has won the palm d'or. There are a lot of elements in there that are technically almost perfected, which I think work for it, and also I'm not sure it it confuses me. this film <laughs> confuses me in my reaction to it because you earlier talked about how you weren't
1: yeah, I think those phenomena are always fascinating, right, like how you see things differently, when they get like societal recognition when they are part of the discourse or something, you may want to reevaluate your opinion or your stance on something. I, I think for me, it hasn't changed so much. I still think, you know, if it were just the first part of the film, I would find it utterly amazing. It's it's really such great filmmaking. And I think, you know, I mentioned that to you uh, off the mic as well, that uh, this is mm-hmm. the perfect showcase of how to make a film. You know, it <laughs> uses so many elements so, so well. Mm-hmm. What we talked about before, uh, this... Uh, just the camera uh the way how to you know portray your protagonist how to mm-hmm. uh, develop themes uh mm-hmm. even you know on a holistic or even on a uh visual level on a oh, what's the word uh auditive not not auditive but a, Auditory? No, on the uh on the acoustic level as well and yeah those things are all fine. strong i also even like this aspect of this inner conflict of how one sees oneself and how one has to present oneself in order to mm-hmm. you know in order to uh mm-hmm. be understood by people or in order <laughs> not to be incarcerated <laughs> as well mm-hmm. but yeah it's really uh and I mean, you mentioned as I think I heard a few people say before uh you mentioned the uh, Santo Mare and there mm-hmm. this was really a showcase of how you can make a courtroom drama that is not a traditional courtroom drama. And I think the more it you know the more it accessed this sort of territory, the less I was, you know, uh impressed by this film the more conventional Mm -hmm. i found Mm it and yeah so i i think for me it's a mixed bag but i'm still positive on the film i just think if it had continued uh the way Mm -hmm. it did in the in the first half of the film i would have been really amazed
0: very quickly just because i'm curious before you wrap up but how did you find as you are a lover of literature this interrogation in court, did you find it was just banal or did you find it was getting to a point because at the end of this interrogation, they essentially, um, one of the lawyers or even the judge deems, "Ah, fiction is more compelling.
1: Yeah, you know, this is one of the aspects that I was also not so fond of because I think it was heavily overwritten uh, in this Mm -hmm. courtroom section. Not even... The scene you just mentioned, but also especially when when the son, you know, is to, uh, when the sun becomes the, help me out here. The witness. Yeah, the witness. Because oh, mm-hmm. I think oh. the way his dialogue is written here, that's just, you know, it's too poetic. It doesn't really, you know, it doesn't reflect on how a 10-year-old or so would talk. It's very polished in a sense that I... Found was not really true to, you know, true to such Mm -hmm. a situation. And yeah, so all these polished aspects, I think they bothered me. I have to be honest here. Mm -hmm.
0: And so that actually gives us a really nice segue into precocious young boys. Perhaps not so precocious in this case, but we can move into L'été dernier or Last Summer by Catherine Brea. This film features Anne. She is a woman who is around 50 years old. She's married. I think she's a
1: bit younger, right?
0: <laughs> okay, a bit younger, a bit younger. She's married and ha- they have two adopted children. And um, she's visited, well, her stepson, Theo, comes to live with the family. And this is actually a remake of the Danish film, The Queen's
1: uh, Queen of Hearts. No.
0: The Queen of Hearts. No, the just Queen of Queen Hearts. Of hearts. <laughs> ah, Queen of Hearts that was purchased by producer Said Ben Saeed, who is also well known for his production of films such as L by Paul Verhoeven. Right. Uh, I say this name incorrectly. Um, and what else? Passion by De Palma. Um, recently, I think he Produced passages by Ira Sachs, exactly. and a couple of others that I'm actually quite fond of, really. And
1: I think it's just uh, if uh, since you mentioned Paul Verhoeven, uh, also this film was co-written by Pascal Bonitza, uh who also co-wrote oh, uh, okay. Benedetta, *Benedetta*. Exactly. Okay. So, and you know, before knowing that, I thought, oh, in a sense, Breya and Verhoeven, mm-hmm. they are sort of you know, evil twins or something. <laughs> you know, they—they they are in the same way daring. And they are in the in the very same sense audacious and also a bit anachronistic, are they not? Like they don't really seem to fit in today's mm-hmm. not moral standards, maybe, but uh, today's uh, like politics,
0: Poli- just political atmosphere of what is considered to be making politically correct films exactly yeah Mm.
1: so in that sense they are really uh they they seem to be siblings uh Mm. and verhoeven also you you know of the same of the same age more or less you know (laughs) both uh i don't know if verhoeven is already 80 but you know they are both heading towards 80 uh at least Mm. in their 70s so I, I think there are similar sensibilities at play and a similar ignorance of what might, you know, uh, what might... Uh,
0: uh, be the downfall of... Not the downfall, that's a bit extreme. Continue.
1: Which is uh, what might, might be very provocative to the audience.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Tell me more about Le Dernier
1: yeah so uh I've seen a few briard films in the past uh also really in preparation for the festival. I must say make me reflect on scenes later, even if it's maybe not the entire film, but there are always scenes that I think things stick with you, and she often has similar premises, you know, like there's an often an older man and a younger woman, he or like a younger man and an mm-hmm. older older lady there was of course the case in, in this film uh, brief crossing that i think right. we, we both saw together yes and there are some parallels between that film and this film here Of course we have this amasseur which is mm-hmm. considered to be maybe her classic or you know one of the films that is most revered uh in her filmography even though of course i think that's a very controversial film uh not just because of what is depicted, but also about the history of shooting that film. I don't know if you know more about that.
0: I All I know very superficially is that um, she had found a 13-year-old girl, perhaps named Anaïs, um, and her character's name was also Anaïs, and she asked Anaïs to perform certain scenes naked and Later on, it came out that it had made the 13-year-old Anaïs very uncomfortable, which is never good to hear about a film production. Um, The film itself is also challenging very much in terms of what it means to be or to find or to desire I suppose when we're at such a young and tender age it pits the younger sister who is less physically attractive and less desirable by societal standards against her older sister who is more desirable by these similar societal standards and really was a film that people should see but that people often comment "Mm," as uh, one of our friends said "Mm, this might be problematic
1: yeah right and I think that's what's uh, fascinating about her as a director is that she makes you forget, you know, that things on screen are problematic, and only upon reflecting later, looking back on the films, you realize, oh yeah, that was not alright. But you know, she has she has this ability to make you forget about these things, and I think that's very fascinating. Like she clearly plays with expectations and also maybe of just certain convictions of the audience and sort of how to undermine them or Mm -hmm. to even break them in a certain sense and then uh, to make the audience reflect on themselves and their own Mm -hmm. reaction to what is to be seen on the screen. And, yeah, I think, you know, one thing I really want to talk about with regard to this film is the notion of eroticism Mm -hmm. because even even Breya herself is almost contradictory when it comes to that term. Because Mm -hmm. in an interview for you know for the release of this film for the premiere of the film, she says that she has always been anti-eroticism because she thinks it's just a it's a means of commodification of the male gaze on the female, basically. That's what she Mm -hmm. says. Uh, you know of course you might resonate with that but later in that same interview she says that uh you know the 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 views she captures you know the gazes mm-hmm. of of um between the two characters here you know mm-hmm. the the 30 something or 40 year old woman and the mm-hmm. uh 17 year old boy or young man that they are charged with eroticism you know or like there's this mm-hmm. erotic gaze and mm-hmm. it's strange to me and i think that is something that you cannot escape talking about this film because it's really it's really sexually charged, don't you think? Like uh, the way the camera lingers on these characters and mm-hmm. if you see the two engaged in sexual activities, the camera really stays on them and uh, throughout them mm-hmm. climaxing or something, like mm-hmm. the camera stays on them and is really invested in... Uh, arousing the audience as well. And I think Mm -hmm. that's... I don't know how you feel about that. I I, I think it seems almost contradictory and I wonder uh, how to approach that.
0: Hmm. The way that I see it is that what her camera is able to capture perhaps is the character's internal desires that are manifesting in that erotic moment. I don't know. I'm not maybe I shouldn't try to defend what she's saying in terms of this contradictory statement of not being interested in showing eroticism. What is eroticism that she speaks of when she says that? Is it simply sexiness? I do think that these characters that we've seen do not display so-called sexiness, not classical, but of uh, they don't often appear to try to seem sexy, but they just naturally happen to engage in this erotic tension through the gaze that they share or through the long duration that she also places by having the camera linger on them during a sex scene or during a scene where we see just them enjoying themselves, the, that pleasure, that desire that's finally come to the surface. And I think that that is what she is able to do in a way that I haven't really seen other, other filmmakers achieve, which then innately must get at the audience. Um, I don't know how you how you see it that way, but I feel like it's more of an internal recognition of her characters how can it be an internal recognition if it also is the camera that is external but it i mean twice really the camera lingers primarily on on, Anne's face right um as she orgasms and we see her face essentially i don't know I, i can't really describe it one has to see the film but there's a recognition that some deep pleasure has overcome her. And Breyat lets us see that pleasure that the character experienced. But there's also a slight conflict, which I think is what makes her film and the acting by uh, Lea Drucker quite persuasive. Right. And then. In,
1: in those scenes, yes, sorry. Yeah, and I think the word maybe that I would, you know, almost equate with uh, eroticism here is desire. Because uh, mm-hmm. when you see these faces, I think what you see in these faces is desire. It's and it's so it's so fascinating to see how these two seduce each other, and mm-hmm. how you can see the conflicting faces. Mm-hmm. Yes, how they yes. are torn uh, mm-hmm. between two poles, or maybe even more. Like, and <laughs> but. Mm, So I think the notion of eroticism, maybe you know, it it may have different appearances, Mm -hmm. and so I wouldn't just dismiss this notion. I think she does do that uh, in an interesting way. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that uh, you know, like Verhoeven, even Mm -hmm. though much less Mm -hmm. comedic. This also, at times, really uh, is uh, in campy territory. Uh, mm. You know, it's it becomes even very soapy at times. But I think uh, the actors are doing a good job here, so it does. You know, it becomes not overt, mm-hmm. but uh, this is certainly at play. At least, you know, in my reading, this is certainly at play here as well.
0: I, I thought these these actors also must be fantastic theater actors. There was a way that they were able to manipulate the duration of the takes and different weaving through the seduction without feeling completely too forced. But I do also see the campy aspect that you're you're talking about. Um,
1: And uh, Bria also, you know, stays true to herself in the sense that, you know, this actor, like, uh, Mm -hmm. of the boy he was 17 when they shot the film so again you know that's mm. uh, <laughs> that's i don't know what the legal boundaries are here but i guess 17 is all right but it's still you know i i think there is this aspect of uneasiness that really uh, translates to to the audience as well
0: mhm yes i cannot say i do not know what the legal boundaries are either
1: yeah, I guess it's like one of these gray zones, basically, like and like gray areas when you, mm-hmm. for instance, see young people smoke in films or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's often just uh, they have to have like parental agreement or something. And here, I guess still, if you're 17, I suppose you still need uh, parental agreements for shooting certain films. But, you know, it's just one... Uh, One may think that, oh, she would hold back now, you know, but Mm -hmm. no, it's still, in that sense, it's really transgressive. And I'm, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that positively or negatively, it's just Mm -hmm. transgressive. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. it is not in accordance with our, um, our sets of values, maybe. Yeah,
0: she's entering territory that people right now making films are just simply trying to avoid if they can.
1: Exactly. And I you know just uh, in terms of these effect the two actors have on each other, mm-hmm. I really loved how this film grasps this sort of juvenating effect uh mm-hmm. on her like yes she uh she's she senses the attraction of of this boy, and you can see her like you know rejuvenating like on the screen. you can mm-hmm. see her becoming younger and maybe uh more.
0: Vibrant.
1: Yeah, becoming more vibrant as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
0: it really did evoke the idea of just feeling in love (laughs) and being young, even though we see on screen that she is not, but it doesn't even over the course it didn't even seem like this anymore. This, of course, there's another point in the plot that is not actually overt at all. And I think I haven't seen Queen of Hearts. I don't think you have either. But it does seem to me, from a little trailer that I watched, that the older woman seduces the younger in the Danish version. And here, I think we have a little bit more nuance. Right. Also, which is a big plot point that goes slightly under the radar, that is not explored, is that An is a lawyer who advocates on behalf of minors who have been sexually abused or assaulted. That is... As intriguing as the inclusion of a 17-year-old actor to play the role of Teo.
1: Right. And, and it's I also, wonder, you know, the yeah. way the film starts, right? That's like, we, we, we yes. see her doing that job.
0: Yes. She's advocating um, or giving advice on how the, the, the child should best represent themselves.
1: Which also... Is that... Yeah. Which is also, you know... Uh, line of continuity to uh, mm-hmm. anatomy of a fall, like how to present mm-hmm. oneself legally.
0: And May, December in some, some sense. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. It's true. It's true.
0: But what I am impressed too, in the same way as maybe I shouldn't say impressed, but what it also does in the same way that it's May, December, it's not concerned at all with trying to understand why this sort of a relationship might manifest it just lets it happen. And I think that in some ways there is a refreshing element to seeing films that are not being filmed anymore due to, very understandably, our political climate. And um yes, just to see someone who dares to step into those grounds.
1: Yeah, and that book by Elena Ferrante came to mind even though I didn't read it I just know the title I read her Naples stories but I didn't read that but her last big novel I think was something called like uh the the lying adults or something or like the life of the lying adults or something and mm-hmm. and here this film uh, plays with that as well like uh who is uh who is to be trusted right like uh, mm-hmm. is it is it the adolescent in maybe an, an attempt for attention or something or like mm-hmm. in a search for a t- attention or is it, is it the, is it the wife? You know? Mm. And I, I, oh yeah, please.
0: It's true. We haven't talked at all about this. I mean, if it's not revealing too much, but at some point it becomes a big deal where this relationship perhaps cannot maintain itself. And we have, a big lie and a big gaslighting episode that occurs. I don't know if you want to talk more about that or that.
1: <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I th- Yeah, I, th- I think it's maybe uh, too much, you know, in spoiler territory, but I, okay. I like, I still like that, uh, that part in general, maybe more on a, you know, in a conceptual sense than mm-hmm. how it played out in the film. Mm-hmm. But I still think it, you know, it grasped interesting ideas that I think are worth pursuing. I don't know if it was always incredibly successful here, but mm-hmm. I nonetheless appreciated it. Uh, the novel I also mentioned earlier is called uh, "The Lying Life of Adults," uh, so by lying life of adults, yeah. So I think, and in that sense, the this film also played on that. I, I just to mention that this film is sort of plot heavy, I suppose, or at least mm-hmm. it becomes that way. Um, right. But she every now and then finds nice symbols and nice uh, just visuals uh, to make it fun throughout, you know, like there's this scene that could already be seen ahead of the festival or like promo material where we Mm -hmm. see her son behind behind the window while she is in the foreground with her husband and the son Mm -hmm. is like only in boxer shorts, you know, and really lascivious you know looking at her and (laughs) lascivious I don't know
0: lasciviously okay we we can look it up later
1: okay that was very Mm -hmm. comedic and I think uh, my my audience you know laughed a lot in that scene there's also that scene you know because evidently you know the husband that she's with she's not you know entirely happy in that relationship and uh, there's this scene when she is gifted a bracelet and this bracelet sort of Evokes the idea of, you know, cup, um, um, of handcuffs. Mm. You know, like it's it's <laughs> yes. very close to that. Like at least in my reading, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, there is this great last shot. I think that where
0: jewelry plays another role.
1: Yeah, where sort of the dialogue and what what we see on the screen there uh, really nicely intertwined, and I think. That will be like an Amasseur or an English fat girl. That will be one of the endings that I will definitely, you know, bear in mind for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I think we should also, before we go to the next film, maybe we should mention that uh, this was Bria's fir- uh, first film in 10 years. Her last film, I think, was the one called Abus de Faibless, and that starred Isabelle Huppert. The reason that she didn't make a lot of films recently is that she's uh, chronically fatigued. She has a disease; it's called uh, hemiplegia, mm-hmm. and this makes her fatigued all the time. And you know, it has an impact on her brain. And yeah, even this film—I mean, right—she uh, was approached by uh, Said Ben Said, as you said. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even like her idea to make that film. I think it's for her. It's not a natural occurrence, like remake another film because she's such an original director mm-hmm. uh, and even like, you know I I looked into that original film here, into uh, Queen of Hearts and uh, it has such a fundamentally different tone, you know it's much more dramatic and it's much more in its in its images it's very cold, you know, as you might expect from like a Scandinavian film, it seems more like almost like a crime film you know it's very, mm-hmm. it's very uh, desaturated mm-hmm. and here so yeah I guess uh, one has to hope that she still has the strength in her to continue making films in the future.
0: Yes thank you for sharing that and so then that brings us to another filmmaker who's also paving her own path and making films that I feel instinctively I don't see are being made the way that she quite makes them. Alice Rohrwacher's La Chimera. This film is her fourth feature film, um, following Corpo Celeste, The Wonders, Happy as Lazzaro, Lazzaro Felice. We probably should have mentioned that it was also Trier's fourth feature film. And La Chimera takes place in the 1980s Italy, where we follow... Artur, played by Josh O'Connor, who's an English man, a part of a group of tomb raiders, or tombaroli, as they call it. Very early on, we learn that he is not interested in excavating these tombs for their valuable antiquities, but rather because he's in search of a portal or a door to the afterlife. Would you like to talk about this film or how your viewing of it was? I think we had very different instinct ideas and you actually saw it twice didn't you
1: yeah I did see it twice because the first time I found it a bit overburdening just also because you know I wasn't in the best shape uh, that night you know uh, can at some point it just drags you down and you have to try to stay stay true to your senses stay alive just and so I felt like I really needed a second watch to maybe you know get a better understanding of what's going on and of course you always have the advantage that if you see a thing for the second time if you see a film for the second time you have the chance of you know of focusing on certain aspects of the films that only that only later in the film gain significance so it was good to it was good to know what this film was going for so I could from the start pay attention to that and Yeah, I think I saw a lot of continuity lines to uh, Lazzaro, um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, of course, you have really the singular, the unique aesthetics of uh, She She's someone who advocates, you know, for uh, analog filmmaking, and Mm -hmm. these films look just beautiful. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's really... It's very grainy, it's very you know it plays with different aspect ratios, mm-hmm. even Lazado back then, I think wasn't like almost square mm-hmm. the aspect ratio here it has different ones, and I think it sort of changes maybe i I think that would be something to you know keep in mind for another watch. I think that's also it might change when they add dream sequences or something.
0: Yes, I wasn't able to keep track of that on the first viewing, um, but I believe she did use 16 millimeter, Super 16, and 35. Right. Um, so three different film stock formats. Do you want to talk more about the dream sequences or about anything? Uh, I've interrupted you, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, maybe just uh, it's also you already draw on some parallels between Alice Rovacher and Justine Trian, and maybe just to mention that both of them more or less had their debut uh, debut like 10 years ago, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. Alice Rovacher like two years earlier, but still they see, see, seem to be part of a similar, if not the same, generation. And uh, mm-hmm. this is you know, good to see how they uh, have progressed over time. I think In the sense, you could argue that this is her, you know, her film of the biggest scale so far. Um, You know, that's that's not to say that I liked it the most, but it's really just Mm -hmm. in terms of what she's capturing here, what she's Mm -hmm. accomplishing here. uh, It's really, it's not to be neglected that this sort of has a different scope, Maybe. Yeah, it feels grander in its ideas. It feels grander in its themes. Also, when I mentioned that there are sort of continuity lines to Lazaro, here the protagonist is again a sort of outsider. You you already Mm -hmm. sort of hinted at that when you said that he's not so much interested in the valuables that Mm -hmm. they might gain from their grave digging. But it's rather... Röhrwache even plays with that element because there's one scene later when we have the fabulous uh, Alba Rohrwacher, who, pl- oh, yes. who plays a <laughs> sort of antagonistic figure here, you know, who is whom they always consult, even though until a certain point of the film, she's anonymous, you know, in, in the sense that you don't know who she really is. like You don't see her on screen and mm-hmm. the characters don't know what she is like. I th- think her name is Spatakurs. Oh yeah, you wanted to say something.
0: Yeah, I think we have to move a little bit backwards, but... Yes. So they're tomb raiders, a group of tomb raiders. And every time they find loot, they take, take it to a person named Spartacus or Spartaco right. or I don't remember either. That's right. And this is an, a person with no face. We never see them appear. And it's only later, perhaps it's a bit of a spoiler. Oops. Uh, that we, re- that we realize that it's Alba Rohrwache. Right. And it turns into a whole entire commentary on the illicit trade of pillaged antiquities.
1: Right. But just before we go into that, I wanted to go on here with the continuity to uh, Lazzaro. So he's really sort of, you know, this Arthur guy. He's sort of an outcast. Of course, he doesn't Mm -hmm. really speak Italian fluently. He, you know, he has this English background. He uh, comes from prison, actually. And yes, uh, one can just suspect what happened, but I guess it's not too difficult to figure out what may have occurred here. He also seems to have these supernatural abilities to, you know, to to find these graves,
0: mm-hmm. to
1: uh, find these tombs, and then he lives really, uh, you know, right like he lives in a shed, and the shed is mm-hmm. adjacent to the city walls. So he really is the sort of outcast and this sort of figure of the periphery here. Mm-hmm. And what I was going to, uh, what I was going to go for here is that uh, when he eventually meets Alba Rovachev's uh, character, uh, then he there's this scene when it becomes uh, when the film becomes a uh, so realistic and we see how how uh, the people who are all really greedy for what they might gain from selling this one valuable that they find uh, Mm -hmm. yeah we don't have to go into what but uh so Mm -hmm. they want to sell this and you can see that they have all dollar signs in their eyes not literally (laughs) but we just hear them as like dogs barking and Mm -hmm. we hear them like grunting or like a uh, growling
0: growling yes you yes, hear them growling
1: growling mm-hmm. so it's this sort of almost like lynchian surrealism in the in that moment and i think uh, that also gives us a sense that he's not like the others you know he is more like a, a lazaro supernatural person who is really uncorruptible but also maybe he doesn't quite pertain to the same reality as the other ones
0: Hmm. Hmm. No, I, 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 do see what you're see, saying. Um, I feel like the character of Lazzaro came straight from like the Piero character in Commedia dell'arte. This naive, innocent, pure person who exists in an almost ethereal plane that's been placed in a position of, um, of, of where people will most likely take advantage of him. Yeah. And, and also maybe people, the like.
1: Alien perspective, right?
0: Mm. Yes, yes. I I can't recall very well, but I do remember this alienation as he walks around on the roads of the of Bicolic Italy, which also seems to be a theme where Ruchwacher continuously returns to um, in terms of placement of shooting. And so for me, Arthur, Arthur, <laughs> Arthur um, was like a hardened version of this Lazzaro character. Both of them are also dressed in all white, but Arthur he evokes more of, a, for me at least, he evoked more of a, most recently, Pacifiction, Benoit Magimel, but also back to Fitzcarraldo in these white, this just pristine white suit that then becomes tarnished as the film goes on. And there's something colonial about his presence, given that he's also an Englishman in Italy. And this also this extra element of not belonging. But there's still something perhaps that one might read into of, of being beyond the natural desires and greed of the other people that he shares his company with.
1: Oh, but um, that's interesting because this notion of colonialism is sort of undermined by the film, right? Because he's sort of doing these Italians a service. Like he uses his abilities, you know, in their interest. And of course this is again sort of ambiguous because what are they doing there? They are basically just plundering the national heritage. You know mm-hmm. that is not for the public. That was never intended for the public. And then this is sort of one of the one of the film one of the subjects the film is interested in. Right? Like uh, mm-hmm. to whom do these tombs belong? Like mm-hmm. are they like eternal souls that should not be bothered? You know, like they should not be dug out at all Mm -hmm. or there is literally there's this phrase that occurs twice or thrice Mm -hmm. uh does it belong to everyone or to no Mm -hmm. one you know and in -hmm. in a sense they are not opposite poles they are the exact same thing and the film also develops that further that in the end we have this sort of mm, almost like a commune of the women which was the term again when you just enter squat yeah they squat this Mm. uh old train station yeah Mm. all uh train station Mm. or um, railway building and then make it their home and then again Mm -hmm. this question pops up uh to whom does this building belong because it was empty you know it has been Mm -hmm. you know empty for such a long time so to whom does it belong to whom do these graves belong and yeah i think uh that's in general that's an interesting and fascinating you know mm-hmm. idea to follow
0: yes no and um just simply the idea of digging under the ground and finding treasures that belong to the historical past of a country and once again the who to whom do these memories this history do these artifacts belong and whether they should or should not be disturbed. And it takes Arthur, who has this divine gift in some sense, to find them, to find what is literally beneath their feet all along. So I guess that outsider perspective also interests me in that he is English. I don't, but you're right. It doesn't necessarily play. He sort of undermines that. But it's curious to me to have this figure. From the outside, who can recognize what has been that hasn't been seen, and that there is also another mm, plot point that goes on where the Tomb Raiders are twice called cogs in a larger machine.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, right, and then <laughs> you know when the image even literally <laughs> yes the image transitions to literally.
0: yes yes. And it, 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 this film did enter more political territory than I thought it would without definitively stating anything, nor without, and I think there was a bit of some characterization of what this type of activity would be like. Um,
1: Yeah, I think uh, to me, it just, uh, you know, overall, I think. The problems I had and still have with this film is that I think these themes not always come together very organically, very naturally. Like There are a lot of themes in there, but I don't think that they, in the end, really amount to something that is greater than the individual parts. I often think, oh, this is a great scene, this is a fascinating idea. But this thread, and we have the literal Mm -hmm. thread in this film, the red thread, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this, I don't know, I don't, you know, I cannot say that I was uh, entirely convinced that, uh, you know, that the narrative here pushes something forward with a certain amount of urgency. Uh, I I still think it's a very fascinating uh, film to see, and I would definitely recommend it, it just that even even with Lazzaro, I felt more that this follows you know a greater concept, and I think things in that film moved more organically together than they did here
0: I, can, I understand that I think for me, I was just taken by the heart of this film. I know it's a very silly thing to say, but just taken by the heart and the soul and the fascination with youth, the digging through earth and engaging, engaging with mythology and a desire of the impossibility of connection and the threads that connect each other. Even though I did feel too, that she threw a lot of things at us in the meantime, That sort of distracted but to me it felt all relevant in some very abstract way as if this is the way that I think so I think that's also why I I, I was very yeah I think that's also why I had a a different and very biased (laughs) subjective (laughs) viewing of this film and there were some just beautiful shots like I really like that shot where, I don't remember if it's the first or the second tomb that they explore, and we just see as if they're looking straight into the womanhood of a tomb, just this oval opening, and we see the faces of the tomb raiders looking, peering through, that just was not so much a violation even, but an exploration and a discovery. Arguably, there's Nuance in the whole entire idea of pillaging, plundering <laughs> um, extracting things from the earth, but it, it appealed to me on many levels, even though this <laughs> this is not always the best discourse
1: yeah, and of course what's what's fascinating here is you uh you know you mentioned soul and you mention mythology, and this is so much really clashing with these very economical urgencies that uh, sort of forced these uneducated people, you know, to go go for uh, these hunts, these mm-hmm. l- these lootings. And Ali Chirowache also said that this very much was part of her upbringing, that often she would encounter people who found Etruscan valuables like in their gardens, you know, just digging there mm-hmm. and they're... And I suppose still today there must be still so many things, you know, uh, in the ground that we don't know about, that we are not aware about. And I think uh, this film even at some point reached this sort of cinematic magic, right? When we we are in the inside of a tomb as it is opened, uh, as it is accessed. And you can see sort of a fact that that the entering air has on on the valuables on the walls that Mm -hmm. it all all almost seems like a sort of oxidization but you know that you would never be able to see unless you know you see a film because of course we cannot be inside there and from the outside seeing that at, at the same time it's not possible so there you use the means of cinema in order to make that scene but you also had a different interpretation of that scene right
0: and i think i i, I thought of it more in the spiritual magic realism lens of the spirits, perhaps of those tombs have been disturbed and have been released
1: right exuding Given, right yes <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> they've been the exposure has caused some effect on them mm-hmm. i mean in her synopsis I don't know if it really played a big role, but the title of the film is La Chimera. And a chimera, or a chimera, is a mythological animal that is part lion, part goat, and part snake. And at some point, it is said of this Englishman that he has lost his chimeras. And in Alice Rohovacher's synopsis, she says, Everyone has their own chimera, something they try to achieve but never manage to find. And that's, I think, how the synopsis just starts. And um perhaps I was just, I don't even entirely know what this means, but it's something, something speaks to me. There's also a lot of art logistic scenes. We see a huge statue being excavated from a tomb and we see it almost uh, with comedy being placed into a huge pallet and filled with soccer balls. So this is how <laughs> this this illicit antiquity gets uh, transported. And after spending all of, well, the majority of the film in the ground, we're released to the skies where where she ends the film with Lee Uccelli, the birds by Battiato, a beloved 70s 80s uh, Italian singer. So it was very hard for me to not like this film <laughs> is all I'm saying, but I'm—I know that's—I'm gonna stop saying that. <laughs> so, is there anything else that you'd like to um, look at or um, something that?
1: No, I think we, you know, we covered a lot here. There, of course, uh, you know, there are these unannounced meta elements as well. You know, when there are mm-hmm. like fourth wall breaks, but I think you know it's. It seems more like a side note, even though like a very uh, funny side note, you know, like if you see that film play out, uh, like Mm. if if you see that scene play out. But yeah, it's nothing I would like to comment on further now.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. There's still many, many, many images or memories or just scenes, I think right now, of... um, just that statue in Close Your Eyes by Victor Eris that it bookends the film where two people are connected right. by the head like Siamese twins in some arrangement. I don't know, if, do we still say that? <laughs> but they're looking in different directions. And that is an image that so will stay with me. And I thank you, Patrick, for joining me and hosting this podcast with me on con and perhaps later down the line we'll see if we revisit some of our highlights of the festival but right now it's time that we wrap up
1: right uh yeah thank you so much for having these conversations together and uh, it was a lot of fun of course there's still so many films so many films worth discussing that we didn't get into yet uh and who knows yeah as you say maybe there will be other recordings but as of now i have to say i'm also you know i'm a bit fatigued by Cannes and also looking forward when still you know one always has to keep in mind after Cannes is before venice
0: yes yes and i will not be joining you for venice but you will you will be writing for moviebreak.de for sure and that's where people can find some of
1: your reviews If you are, you know, if you're a German speaker.
0: If you are a German speaker. To wrap up con, there's a final farewell. We shall give you a little bit of music that we hear every time (laughs) a projection starts. Carnival des Animaux by Camille saint saens Specifically the aquarium portion of that
1: song. Yeah, the theme.
0: (laughs) The theme. Thank you once again. Till next time. Bye-bye. Ciao.